I'm all anxious until Will prays a prayer like that. Thank you, man. I'm free, baby. <laughs> hey, spring is coming. Thank you. Yes, I know. Such a beautiful day. All right. Um, we have been looking at the life of Paul, and we're coming to an end um, in, in this series, only to start another one, which we're pretty fired up about. Um, but I'll tell you more about that in the weeks to come. So yeah, it, the, Paul, the, the life of Paul is really going to culminate in Paul being in two places. Jerusalem, we're going to look at that today, and Rome. Just thinking about these two cities, their importance, especially in the first century. Uh, Jerusalem uh, represents the city of God. It's not just that biblically, but in the first century, that, that is how it was seen. I mean, it's so central to the biblical story, starting all the way uh, with Abraham, David, Jesus, uh, and the prophets then speak about Jerusalem being the epicenter of, of the kingdom of God in, in the last days. Um, and then you think about Rome, and Rome is the epitome of the city of man. In fact, Revelation will call Rome Babylon, which is the term for the city of man. It's the glory of empire. It's Caesar's kingdom. And Paul wants to get to both of these cities. So starting today, let's turn our Bibles to Acts 21. If you have a Bible like mine, it's on page 903. We love to stand for the reading of God's word. If that's something you can do, please stand. And I'm going to start right under this subheading, Paul's arrival at Jerusalem in verse 17. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James and all the elders who were present. Makes me wonder who else is there. Like, is, is, is Peter there? Is, is John there? Some of the other disciples. I'm sure some of them are. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard, heard this, they praised God. I, that, that, that didn't last very long. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the Torah. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to live according uh, to our, our walk, our, our halakha. What shall we do? They will certainly... Hear that you have come. So, what do we so here is what we tell you. There are four men, four of our brothers, who have made a vow. It's probably the Nazarite vow. Take these men, join in, in, in their vow, in their purification rites, and also pay their expenses so that they can have their head shaved. And then everyone will know that there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the Torah. As for the, the Gentile believers, we have done what was told for us to do, to tell them from Acts 15, from the council, that decision that they should abstain from food sacrifice to idols, from blood, from meat strangled to animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men. He purified himself along with them, then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of the purification would end and when the offering would be made for each of them. This is God's word for, for thus far. You can be seated. 
So if you remember way back when, two weeks ago, um, Paul is making his way to Jerusalem. He just wrote the, the letter uh, to, to the church in Rome, which today is in our Bible called Romans. Uh, so that letter is going to Rome. He is on a, a ship sailing for Jerusalem. On his way to Jerusalem, he's warned. You go there and you're going to die. So I want to start with this question. Why does Paul insist on going to Jerusalem? Well, I don't know what your thoughts are on the last days. That's something we talk about. Are we in the last days? Are we not in the last days? I can promise you Paul believed he was living in the last days. The reason for this is because the prophets told him so. The prophets make it very clear that when the Messiah comes, he's going to bring in or usher in this messianic age. That's why Peter, the first thing uh, in Acts 2 on Pentecost, when he stands up and preaches, he says, the last days are here. We are in the last days. Uh, Hebrews 1, I mean, Hebrews begins with, in, in, in former days, God spoke to us through his prophets and in various Ways, But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son. That's the New Testament, the Old Testament. Um, Hosea 3 verse 5 talks about when, 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 when that new king, one like David, comes and, 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 and reigns, the coming one. He will usher in the last days. Or I could take you to Isaiah 2. Or Malachi, Micah 4, which ironically, it's the same exact verse. I chose Isaiah 2. It's also Malachi 4. But it says, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. Jerusalem. Jerusalem matters in the last days. It will be exalted above the hills. And all the nations, the Gentiles, will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob, for he will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. And the Torah will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and, and he will judge between the nations. He will dis settle disputes for many peoples. Again, the Gentiles. And how about this? They will beat their guns into computer parts. <laughs> and it will be a time of shalom. So if you get in Paul's shoes, he, he, this is a time of anticipation. Uh, Christ has come. The kingdom of heaven is being unleashed. The new age is breaking in among his people in Jerusalem. And it's breaking out all over the world. And, and this is what greets him when he gets to Jerusalem. First the news that thousands of Jews trust Christ. And the scholars that I say, that I, that I trust believe that one in three Jews living in Jerusalem at this time believe that Christ is the Messiah. So we're not even talking just thousands. We're talking hundreds of thousands. They're like, Paul, it's breaking in. But they hardly tell him the, 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 the good news without getting to the bad news. Um, and, and, the, and the bad news is essentially this. There's one big, huge family feud taking place in Jerusalem. Uh, we see it in verse 21. Um, 
the, the Messianic Jews, the Jews that believe Messiah, they have a huge bone to pick with Paul. That's Jew on Jew. Then a few verses later, we didn't read verse 30, but Paul's going to go into the temple. And, and there's going to be this huge squirmish between Paul and this mob of Jews that are there. Again, that's Jew on, on Jew. And then still later, when you go to Acts 23, Paul is going to be brought before the Jewish Supreme Court. And there's going to be this huge fight that's going to take place between the Sadducees and the Pharisees right there. And so you have all this disunity, all of this infighting. And I want you to understand that this began well before the Apostle Paul. Um, it began even well before Jesus. In fact, it goes back uh, to the Greeks. When, when, when the Greeks invaded this part of the world, we've talked about this, they didn't just conquer it, but they sought to Hellenize it. And, and, and what this did is it produced this huge cultural um, war. And we, we've talked about what Hellenism is. Hellenism is a worldview that makes life all about the individual. It's about being the best. It's about being the smartest. It's about making it to the top. Um, it's me, me, me. And, and, and see, this worldview also uh, produced a lifestyle. A lifestyle that was all about personal comfort, pleasure, individual rights, celebrity, living this big, prosperous life. <laughs> I know what you're thinking right now. <laughs> Sounds like our world. The world's incredibly Hellenistic. I mean, when you just take just one little aspect of, of Hellenism, like sport, think about sport today. I mean, the Greeks invented sport. The games, the arenas, the stadiums. And the reason why sport is at the heart of Hellenism is because uh, sport is a way that tells us who's the best, who's the strongest, who's the fastest. It produces celebrity. It gives us hours of entertainment. And here's what Hellenism is obsessed with, the human body. They want to know how good that body can look. They want to be able to go to the games and, and, and look down there at these athletes that they're watching and, and, and see their naked bodies because that's how they did it. They did it all in the nude and think, wow, those naked bodies down there look just like the Greek statues I pass every day in the marketplace. And then ESPN just comes out with their body issue. <laughs> these naked athletes. I'm sorry. I, I looked at it. Not all of it, but I'm just like, now I just dug a hole for myself, didn't I? Come on, some of you, body issue, ESPN magazine, just me? <laughs> Should I go home now? <laughs> and listen, I just told you just about sport. This Darwinistic worldview is applied to everything in life and, and you need to understand, for the Jews in the first century, this is so foreign. This way of life is so outside everything that's been handed to them. But at the same time that it's foreign, it's also seductive, it's, it's, it's enticing. And so the big question became, uh, in the first century, to what degree can we participate in this? To what degree must we separate? And whole groups of Jews formed out of this. One of those groups are the Sadducees. These are the priests and Levites who run the temple. They indulged in it. They loved it. In fact, the historian Josephus, who's, who's writing about the Jews living during this time as a contemporary, 
He tells us there's not enough priests to conduct worship services on Shabbat in the temple because so many of these priests were watching the nude wrestling in the palestra. I'm like, that'd be like if you guys came here today and, and, and all, all the pastors or a lot of us were at the baseball game. I don't know how, how well that would go over. Um, or think about the priests. These Sadducean priests at Jesus' trial, what they say, they say, we have no king but Caesar. Then you have the Pharisees on, on, on the other end of the spectrum. Uh, this, this too is a response to the Hellenism. Pharisee simply means separatist. They live to separate themselves from Hellenism. Don't taste it, don't touch it, don't participate in it. And so what you have um, is you have the Sadducees who are the elites of Jesus' day, Paul's day, who are running the temple. And then you have the Pharisees who are the blue-collar locals who are running the synagogues. But Josephus tells us that easily the most respected people of Jesus' day were the Pharisees. And, and Josephus tells us why. Because they were so committed to the book and not just knowing it, but to walking it out and making disciples who would follow them in that. So then after the Greeks, Rome enters the story, and the temp temperature of this ten tension is turned way up. And it's, it's not only because they take Hellenism and put it on steroids, but now you have an occupation. And I want us right now to try to get in the shoes of that. You have Gentiles lording it over God's people. And, and these Gentiles are Rome. And, and Rome at this time thinks of itself as, as the great world benefactor. But, but all the benefits that it provided the world, it, it came with conditions. So if you cross Rome, like you didn't pay Rome its taxes, um, there was going to be a steep price to pay. I remember on one of my Israel trips, um, I brought Professor Gombis uh, from uh, Grand Rapids Theological Seminary, and he said something that stuck with with me the moment he said it. He said, what billboards are in our day is what crucifixions were in the first century. That's what Rome did if you crossed them in any way. They crucified you. And, and see, we are kind of the Rome of our day, so it's hard for us to put ourselves in, in, in that shoe. And I'm not talking that, that our that we're evil like that, but, but we are world superpower. But imagine if we were subservient today to another nation where you have this foreign military presence, this police state, every day in their watchtowers watching us. And see, this produced another Jewish group called the Zealots. The Zealots are Pharisees passionate for God, passionate about his word and obedience to it. They just took it further than the Pharisee, and, and they looked at verses like Psalm 149, verse 6, where it says, the praise of God is on our lips, but a sword is in our hands to take out God's enemies. So with their mouth, they're praising God, and with their hands, it's like, enough of this. We're taking them out. They did something about it. 
And they did it because of their passion and zeal for God, their passion for God's word. They not only took out Romans, but they also took out their own countrymen who who had gone complacent in the faith. And if you want to know who Paul is before he met Christ, he's this person. And then when you add Jesus to this whole cocktail of tensions, I mean, think about what Jesus shows up teaching and preaching. He preaches the kingdom of heaven is here. God's reign is here. And see, something that we just miss in that is that a kingdom assumes a king. So every time Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is here, he's also saying God's king is here. And see, this too just added to the division, and Jesus speaks about it. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace. In Luke 12, 51 through 53, he says, in a family of five, three will be against against two. Son will be against father, father against son, brother against sister, sister against brother. Now, if you look at the Jews and, and, and wonder how in the first century did you guys reject Christ? It's simply because he is the antithesis to their expectations. They wanted a lion, not a lamb. But weren't you? However, there were many Jews that looked at their story and they see that, wow, every time God wins, every time God heals and redeems, um, there's a lamb that's at the center of this. They could see how the prophet spoke of the coming one. That when he'd come, he'd come like a lamb. He'd be led like a lamb. And then when you add the news of Christ's resurrection to this whole thing, because resurrection is what the prophets talk about. You go to Ezekiel 37, and, and, and the prophet looking at this Kidron Valley, which to, even to this day is full of all these graves. And the question is, can people come out of these graves? Can these dead bones live? And the prophet says, yes, when Messiah comes, they will be raised from the dead. And there's that one little detail in Matthew when Jesus is crucified. Not only did the veil of the curtain torn in two, but the graves were open and people came forth. New creation is being unleashed because God's king has come. And so then when you go to Acts 21 verse 20 and Paul comes and told thousands upon thousands of Jews are are trusting uh, Christ. But then it said, but they're zealous, zealous for the law. And we read this and we're like, oh. What do you mean they're zealous for the law? We look at this as a bad thing, but remember, law is their word for Torah. Torah is their word for God's word. And so they say to Paul, Paul, the rumor rumor has it right now is that you're telling believing Jews, not believing Gentiles, but believing Jews to turn away from Moses. Now, Moses is shorthand for the five books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Last I checked, that's still part of God's word. So they're saying, brother, please tell us this isn't so. So what they do is they ask Paul, Paul, would you join four of our brothers who are taking this Nazarite vow? And and with the Nazarite vow, you had to pay a price in the temple. You had to offer a, a, a lamb as a sacrifice That's all part of it. And so, I mean, Christians look at this and they say, how dare Paul do this? Uh, Christ has been our sacrifice. How how dare Paul go in the temple and offer a lamb as a sacrifice? 
But here's what I want us to do this morning. I want to get in their shoes. Does trusting Christ mean that God's word is now irrelevant? It would be like if I said right now, that Bible that is in your hands doesn't matter anymore, and obedience to it doesn't matter anymore, because Christ has come. Is that true? And if that is true, how is that true? Or if that's false, how is that false? Because to wrestle with with these things is to get ourselves in the shoes of of what our our brothers and sisters are wrestling with in the first century. Now I just, I want to lay that one aside. I'll come back to it. Because this isn't their only challenge. The the other challenge is the Gentiles. Because there are two prophetic visions for what will happen to the Gentiles when Christ comes. One of those prophetic visions, which you find in places like Malachi 4, or you find it also in places like our New Testament in Revelation 16, where it talks about Armageddon, that the the Gentiles are going to be destroyed. It's destruction. But, but the other version is, is, is what we read in Isaiah 2 earlier. It's conversion. Now just go down to verse 30 of chapter 21 where it says the whole city was aroused because Paul went to the temple and the people came running from all directions. Just picture this. Seizing Paul, they dragged him through the temple and immediately the gates were shut. I mean, Paul comes from an inch of his life. He's attacked. This whole city's triggered by Paul. Why are they so infuriated with him? Ironically, it's the Romans who step in and, and, and save Paul. And now we're right back where we started this whole series. Paul asked the Romans, can I speak, can I speak to the crowd? Um, the Romans say, sure. Paul stands before the crowd. He speaks to them in Hebrew. And in that moment, the whole uh, thing just went silent. Paul has him in the palm of his hands, and he, he basically gives his testimony. He talks about his younger life. He talks about how he's a Jew, um, a Hebrew of Hebrews, how he was raised uh, not just in Tarsus and a Jewish family, but his family was of the Pharisee tradition. He talks about how he came to Jerusalem, and he studied under the great Rabban Gamaliel. He talks about how he became zealous for the law, just as they are zealous for the law, Um, And and then he talks about in his zeal how he's trying to do everything he can to wipe this cancer out that has infiltrated Judaism. And then to his horror, as he's going to wipe more of this cancer out, the God that he thinks he is living passionately for, in a moment, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And to Paul's utter horror, someone who, who, who thinks they're, just, they're on God's side, they're on God's team, they're doing great things for God. In, in, in a moment, Paul is horrified of the fact he's God's enemy. And not only is he God's enemy, but in that moment where in his mind, what does God do with, it, with his enemies? He crushes them, he destroys them, 
God in his mercy, in his grace, accepted me. And he forgave me. And he brought me in. And he put a call on my life. A call that is consistent. It was, it, it, I would not be surprised if God spoke Isaiah 49, 6 to him. It is where God says, Is it too small of a thing that you should be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob, to bring back those of Israel that I have kept? And I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Paul tells him this. This is my call. And what's their response? Look at chapter 22, verse 22. After Paul says, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So the crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He is not fit to live. This is why they want to kill him. And we can look at this today with our own self-righteousness and say how pathetic, how pathetic that at a time when the nation should be streaming into Jerusalem, the city of God, instead Jerusalem has been reduced to this nationalistic, Jewish-centric entity. God make us great and destroy our enemies. Are we any different? Maybe we're just looking in the mirror. How quickly we can make this whole thing about our tribe, about our people, about our nation, thinking that God is, is for us and he's against everybody else. God loves the world. He loves every person of the world. And he wants to reach the world. And I look at our, our, our nation right now. I mean, we are a nation too that's at war. Culturally, politically, racially. And let me risk right now upsetting a lot of people. When we marry the kingdom of heaven to politics, we are damaging the gospel in a serious way. And listen, this includes both right and left. And I will start with the right right now. God's agenda is not to make America great. God has not redeemed us so that we would be zealous for our nation. He has redeemed us so that we would have his heart and be zealous for the nations. That we would love the world as he loved the world. That we would love all the people of the world that as he loves the people of the world. That we would love people and live for people outside of our tribe. That we would live to reach um, our neighbors and our nations with the love of Christ. 
and, and probably even most importantly, that our identity would no longer come from our tribe or our race or our country, but that our identity would come from belonging to God and to his family, which transcends all those things. Good. That's good. <laughs> to Christians on the left, God never intended to fix this world through politics. And the, 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 the left have, in my mind, become the, the, the new Pharisees of our day. And, and when you think about the Pharisees, um, I just described the Pharisees. Yeah, they were very respected. They were all about the word of God, and they were about walking it out. But there's a reason why Jesus looked at that group of people and condemned them so harshly. Because they walked around uh, riding their moral high horse, exalting themselves, criticizing and condemning everybody who didn't think and believe like them, and even their acts of righteousness, of justice, were not done because they loved people. It was, hey, look at me. It's not the kingdom of heaven. Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are to be my city set on a hill. I'm bringing my shalom to the chaos of the world through you. Heaven is going to come to earth through you. It's not going to be through the kingdoms of this world or through politics. It's going to be through my church. And I want us to embrace that as we divorce ourselves from both right and left. And see... As this national fight that's going on right now between right and left on our watch, and who knows to what extent it's going to crescendo, um, or even think about the global struggle that's taking place right now on our watch, nation against nation, here's the deal. As Christians, we should be transcending this struggle. Because when you even look at where we are in the biblical story, Acts 21, just a few years from Paul arriving in Jerusalem, all-out war is going to take place between Jerusalem, the city of God, and Rome, the city of man, both in the name of, of what they think is their vision for world peace, are going to pick up the sword, and there's going to be bloodshed upon bloodshed to thousands. And I'll tell you what's so cool about that. Not that reality, but during this time, the church Silently in the background, behind the scenes, going about their father's business, reconciling people to God, reconciling Greek and Jew, slave and free, male and female, all in the name of Jesus Christ. And just as God called Paul, he is calling his church, partner with me. Partner with me. Bring my kingdom to this world. Okay, now let's go back to this other issue of the law. <laughs> the Torah. Like, what, what, what place is, is this to be in God's family? I mean, what, what, what purpose is it in light of Christ? Did, did Paul actually teach that we should abandon it? Um, because I really think we need to get this right, or we're never going to be the church. So I'm going to start with what Jesus said about it. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish Torah, I came to fulfill it. 
I came to be its end. I came to be its goal. I came to be its maturation. And Torah has never ceased being God's word. In fact, the word Torah, um, it's an archery term that means to hit the mark. It's God's mark. In fact, sin is an archery term as well in the Old Testament. It means to miss the mark. So sin is every time that that, that we're not hitting God's mark. And and repentance also fits in this because repentance is is when we get our aim off and we we turn back and, and, and the trajectory of our lives is now going towards the mark that God has laid out for us. So, did Paul teach Jewish believers to forsake Torah? No, he didn't. In fact, in Acts 25, verse 8, he says it when he's on trial. He says, as to, to, to God's Torah, um, I, I fulfilled it. When, when they ask him to join four other Jewish brothers who are taking an Azurite vow, I mean, that's easy for Paul. Paul's like, yeah, I'll do that. I'll join them. But I want to now get where it gets complicated because hitting the mark is different for a Jewish believer than it is for a Gentile believer. And I'll start with the Jews. For for Jews like Paul, their relationship with God is, is marriage. And the Mosaic law spells out for them their wedding vows. So we need to let our Jewish brothers in, 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 who are in, in the same faith in Christ that we are, we need to let them be faithful even right down to the letter of that law. And we need to recognize that the law for Gentiles are different. That's why, Paul, or that's why what is said in Acts 21 verse 25. Um, this is what the Jerusalem Council established for the Gentile believers, which is essentially for us to refrain from idolatry and sexual immorality. And, and if you think about it, all sin, all missing the mark is idolatry, and the prophets tell us that all idolatry is spiritual adultery. So while we might be free from the letter of the law, we are not free from the spirit of the law which is because we are in Christ, we are still called to love God with everything we have and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And here's what both Jew and Gentile who are in Christ share. This is awesome. I'm going to end with this. We are free from the curse of the law. Because Galatians tells us, it talks about the curse of the law. Uh, the, the, the law, at the end of the day, though it's good, though it's spiritual, it's from God, it dooms us. And it dooms us not because the law is bad, it dooms us because we're bad. And Paul will spell this out in many of his letters. Probably the clearest place is Romans 7. And, and, and Paul in Romans 7 is reflecting on those days when he's this Torah-keeping Pharisee. And, he, and, and as he was keeping Torah... He could actually say, as to Torah, I was blameless. And how could he think that? Well, you know, he could, he could, he, he, he could look at all, all the laws and say, you know what? I haven't killed anyone. I haven't lied to anyone. I honor my parents. I don't have these idols in my house that, that, that I prayed to. But Paul in Romans 7 says there's one law that came into him, and it literally killed him. 
And it's the law, do not covet. Because here is, is, is how this thing came in and smote Paul. Where all the other laws are, are behavioral, and Paul could look at them and say, wow, I'm so good, I'm so righteous. This thing just cut through him and, and showed what was behind all of his goodness into his greedy heart. Because what is covet? It's, it's greed. It's, it, and, and, and covet is more than just this wanting. It's this idolatrous wanting. It's not just when we want bad things. It's, it's, it's wanting things too badly. It's, it's when we want anything more than God. Coveting is when we essentially say to God, God, you're not enough. I need this. This is the law that came in and, and killed him. Because now underneath he could see his heart. Added to this, the light of Christ came into his life. The light of the knowledge of the glory of, of, of Christ shone into his heart. See, the closer we get to Christ, the more we see our guile, our self-righteousness, our self-centeredness. In fact, in Romans 7, Paul describes this condition as being split apart. I mean, we know that, I think, the famous verse where where, where Paul says in Romans 7, verse 15, he says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. He says, for I, I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil that I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. And Paul in these verses just describes how he, even in Christ, feels split apart. This battle rages in him. In Romans 7, he talks about how sin still lives in him. In Romans 8, he talks about how the spirit lives in him. And, and, and there you have the reason for the battle between uh, the sin and the spirit, which is raging within him. And, and Paul says, what are we to do? Now, here's what the old Paul would do. He would turn to the law, to self-effort, to willpower, to trying harder. And I'm telling you, that is fighting a battle we can't win. Because the law, at the end of the day, is powerless to change us. And the answer to this is Christ. And we need to throw ourselves into Christ, not so that we can just try harder, but we throw ourselves into Christ so that Christ can convert us. And for people like Paul, this isn't Christ converting this bad, rebellious self. It's, it's, it's God converting this good, self-righteous self. And I can attest to that in my own life. There is a lot more hideousness underneath good rod than there is underneath bad rod. But only Christ can convert both. And that's the gospel. And what's the gospel? It's at the end of Romans 7 where Paul says, what a wretched man that I am. Have you come to that place in your life I mean, Jesus tells a whole parable on this about a, a, a sinner and a Pharisee. And he says, the Pharisee just looked at that sinner and says, God, I thank you that I'm not like that person on his moral high horse. That's who Paul was. But this sinner is on his knees beating his breast for God. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Have you come to that place? Have you come to that place where you can say, who will rescue me? 
where you see that you in and of yourself, your own strength, your own righteousness, your own performance, you're helpless. But you see the one who can rescue you and, and you turn from yourself and you, you turn to the one who can rescue you, to Christ, which leads you to say, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ because it's through him, which means that we, we give up making this about ourselves, about a righteousness or a spirituality that we perform and give to God. And do you like me now? Would you bless me? To just throwing ourselves into a Christ a righteousness that he lived out. Blow by blow, day by day. Not giving in. Living the life that we were supposed to live. And then on top of that, taking our judgment day. Because that's what Christ on the cross is. He took the consequences for all our sin. It was placed on him. So that Paul can say these words, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And we are no longer fighting then a battle we can't win. We are fighting a battle we can't lose. And we are free to love God, to live for him, to obey him. And you know what? Here's the deal. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what the peasants think anymore about me. <laughs> it doesn't matter even what I think about me. When the king looks at me and declares me to be righteous, I am righteous indeed. And that's the gospel. That's what came into Paul's life and changed him and converted him. And that's what we as Jewish and Gentile believers share. God, would you shine the light of your Christ in our hearts that we would see who we are apart from you and that we could see who we are in you because we see you and because we know you and we know who you are and what you've done for us and that sets us free from making it about us and we can rest knowing it's all about you. And we just throw ourselves into you. In Jesus' name, amen.